0: But it has been a while in Isaiah. We took a slight break, a couple weeks, and it was Philippians three twelve to 16, about striving forward. And now we're back in Isaiah. I love Isaiah. It's lofty. It's grand. Uh, it's encouraging to the heart and to our faith. It gives a, a, us a perspective on ourselves and the fact that God controls all things, and God is a faithful God. Do you agree that God is faithful? I mean, this very morning, do you agree that God is faithful? God is a faithful God, and we see this repeatedly throughout Isaiah. Um, and in particularly, you see in this section of 40 to 48, these grand views of God and how he is controlling all things. And so we begin with this thought, and the title is, The Blind Will Praise. The Blind Will Praise, Isaiah 43, 8 through 21 let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time you've given us, and pray that in the moments ahead, you would use your word to encourage the hearts of your people. And if there's someone here today, uh, they don't know you as Lord and Savior, that their eyes would be open, that they would see Christ. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen. The blind will praise Isaiah 43, 8 through 21. I won't read the entire time uh, passage to you. Uh, But I want you to see a number of key thoughts. And these key thoughts are going to highlight something. And the essential thought is this. Uh, This passage is showing us how uh, a faithful God has a plan for the unfaithful. The faithful God has a plan for the unfaithful. And who are the unfaithful? We've been seeing time and time again um, since we began our time in Isaiah 40. The unfaithful are the people of Judah, Uh, Judah has committed covenant treachery, but despite their inconsistency, despite their rejection of God and his word and of the prophets, and ultimately of God himself, God will show himself faithful because he he is a faithful God. How do we know he's a faithful God? The record of the testimony of scripture tells us that repeatedly that God is absolutely faithful. Uh, His name tells us that he is faithful. He is Yahweh. He is Yahweh, the all-sufficient God, who is a covenant-keeping God. They have committed covenant treachery, but God will keep his end of the decision of the covenant. And we established that a long time ago in our time in Isaiah, even as we looked at Isaiah 40, as we begin. Comfort, or comfort my people. Why should God comfort his people? He should comfort them because they are now experiencing this exile in Babylon, and God has a heart for his people. And he says, in one sense, although you are undeserving, um, I still will show grace towards you because I am this faithful covenant-keeping God. You, say, you said that God is the covenant-keeping God now about five uh, or six times. You're right. We can say it a thousand times because we need to be reminded that God is a faithful God. This is something that should resonate in our hearts. This is something that we should repeat uh, repeatedly, if you will, time and time again, that God is faithful. And despite our unfaithfulness to him, God will remain faithful because he cannot help but be that. It is impossible for God to fail. Something that we said several times over is we rest in the reality of God's perfection. What does that mean, rest in the reality of God's perfection? Because God is a perfect God. That means that there is never a time, never a place, never a way, never a circumstance where he cannot but act in a way that reflects his perfections. And if we say that God is faithful, that means he is perfectly faithful. And he will be that despite our unfaithfulness to him. And this is absolutely true when it comes to Judah. Here are people that have, God has shown them nothing but compassion and kindness and mercy, but yet they have turned their back on the living God, and they're turned towards idols and idolatry. And God is on the scene in another court case, and he's saying, how dare you not be faithful when I've been so faithful to you? My record stands for it. Why would you serve gods that are not gods? They cannot speak, they cannot think, they they cannot see, they cannot provide for you anything, but yet You have conjured up in your own mind that they have some power which they absolutely do not have. I am Yahweh. Trust me and trust me alone. This is a message for all of us, really, that we have to serve God in the midst of difficulty and heartache and pain. And even when I shared in our anchored thoughts as we look to 2022, um, undoubtedly some of us will face some difficulty, some heartache, some pain, some trial. But in the midst of it all, we can guarantee ourselves, and we must guarantee ourselves from God's word, not just some thought we conjure up on our own. It has to be based in the clear testimony of the word of God that God is a faithful God. I can look out right now. As a couple of weeks ago, you remember, we I'm glad that we did, did meet on the first, and not as many were here. But what was so interesting with all those empty seats there, uh, not a, a lot of empty seats available, people still sat in the same place. Uh, I still see the same people right along that wall, although all those seats were available. And all these spots were here, this, the same people right there they are, third row in, right there in the aisle. Uh, you're faithful in sitting in that same place. Absolutely. And we gathered and we talked about how God is a faithful God. And as we look to the new year, and in this new year, we don't know what's in store. But I can look at your faces now because I'm always observing you and seeing as much as I can, as much as I can as a, as a man. I'm observing and I, and I try to I pray for you and I want to follow your life in as best Bill and I can. And Tom and other leaders in this group can try to shepherd you. But I know that you are going to face difficulties. And I can look on your faces now, and I know that some of you that are facing difficulties, even right now in this moment, because I'm just aware of it. And the question is, what will you do in 2023? Will you believe and trust that God is a faithful God? You must. And this is God's declaration in this passage as well, as this court case continues against the nation's and against these substitutes for God, these idols, which Isaiah has said repeatedly, they are nothing. As a matter of fact, they're less than nothing. So why would you serve them? Why would you follow them? I want us, before we get into the text proper, to note some key words. And that's what it, the first thing that I always do. I, I look for patterns, and I begin to circle words, and, and I see if there is some consistency here that would help me understand the flow of thought. And if you look through it, you should surely note in verses 8 to 21, which we'll look at this morning. Notice verse 10. He says, my witnesses. Then he says, my servant. Then there's a declaration that he makes in verse 10. He declares. And notice in verse 12, the Lord declares. And notice in verse 14, he says. Then in verse 16, he says. God makes a declaration and he is speaking. So, therefore, when God speaks in this court case, everyone must hear. Um, If you think about a normal court case, one would bring forth expert witnesses at some point in time. And when that expert witness takes the stand, everyone is what? Inclined to listen to them. And so, God is speaking, and so we should be inclined to listen to him. God is speaking. What is God declaring? What is God saying? And notice throughout just uh, this use, and I said it even a couple of weeks ago. Pay attention to this: the use of uh, these pronouns here. He says, "My, my, me, I am." He, verse ten, me, verse eleven, I, I, no savior besides me. Notice verse twelve, my witnesses. I am the Lord. Verse thirteen, I am He. Notice 13, my hand, I act. And then he goes on to say in 14, I have sent to Babylon. Verse 15, I am the Lord, he says there as well. Verse 19, notice what he says, I will even make a roadway. They will glorify me, in verse 20, because I have given waters. Notice verse 20, my chosen people, I form for myself. So we see God is absolutely involved in bringing about this result, this faithful God, even to this unfaithful people. Now, there's something else that you really must pay attention to because the title itself, um, one doesn't just make up titles because that's the first thing that rattles off your brain. There has to be some sense in which it's connected to the theme, the idea, the big picture of the text. And what is it saying here? The blind will, in fact, praise. How do we see that? Uh, what was the basis of me giving it this title? Notice verse eight: Bring out the people who are blind even though they have ears, and the deaf even though they have i 'm sorry they have eyes and the deaf even though they have ears now, but notice how the passage ends. You've heard me use this language before, inclusio. Uh, It's another way of saying bookends. Here is a thought that begins, here is a thought that ends, and the argument continues in the middle of the passage itself to bring us back to that initial thought. And then what do we see in verse 21? The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. So in verse 8, they're blind and they're deaf, but in verse 21, it says, these people who are in fact now blind and deaf, but they will declare my praise because I'm a faithful God. And despite their unfaithfulness and the fact that they don't deserve it, they will glorify me. And what a tremendous uh, consideration for all of us. When we think about ourselves before we knew the Lord, all of us were, were we not blind? Yes or no to that. Were we not deaf? <laughs> We were all deaf, but now we are people of his praise because what has he done? He has called us to himself, and now that he's called us to himself, he has set us on a course where our whole lives, our whole purpose of our existence is that we will bring glory and honor to God. Whereas before our lips were giving praise to many other things, our thoughts were directed in many other ways, but now they're directed to the living God, and our praise can come from our lips. Now, the passage uh, really breaks down into two parts. It breaks down into two parts, and I want you to see this. And first, it is this, the eternal God will keep his promises. That's verses 8 to 13. The eternal God will keep his promises. And even referring to him as the eternal God, there are obviously many ways that we could refer to God. There's a reason for that in the text as well which we'll see in a moment, and then the eternal God will act on his promises. So he will keep his promises, and he will act on his promises. And we might even say the eternal God is capable of keeping his promises, and the eternal God will be faithful in keeping his promises. Now, let's begin to walk through the passage itself and ask ourselves, I should be encouraged. Let me say this to you. You should walk away. Being encouraged because, again, I see a view of God that he is absolutely faithful. So whatever I face in life, I know that a faithful God has a specific sovereign plan for my life. Notice verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have ears, and the deaf, even though, um, I keep saying ears, uh, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears, he says. So bring out, or really the word here is free the people who are blind. And this word free, if we go back to the Exodus theme, which is a part of the argument in this case, is we go back to Exodus 13, and the people of God would be free from Egypt. And now the word is used here, I want to free my people from Babylon. And the people of God in the Exodus, in one sense we could say for them as well, they were blind and they were deaf. Because remember, when the people of God came out of the Exodus, were they gravitating fully towards the Lord God? No, they were not. Because in a short period of time, what did they do? They reverted back to the gods of the Egyptians. And here we have a theme that is following a new Exodus. And we're going to see that later in the text as well. God is saying... Free my people. Just as I freed them from Egypt, I will free them from Babylon. Despite their blindness, I will give them sight again. Despite despite the fact that they cannot hear, I will give them the ability to hear, which is, again, a reminder of salvation is forever and always an act of grace. Amen? Where would we be without grace? And we would still be deaf, and we would still be blind. Although many of us, before we came to the Lord, we thought we saw, but we did not. Not at all. And then notice verse 9. He says, All the nations have gathered together, so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. So what is happening here? So here is the court case. So God is saying, now, bring all the nations to gather around. I'm going to make a declaration. The declaration really began in chapter 40, and he's going to continue throughout. And here is the court case. Now God is on the scene, and he is going to make a declaration The blind will be saved is what we see in verse eight. And then the nations have no case. So it says, all of you come gather together. Who among you can declare this? And what does he mean by declare this? Who among you can speak into the future? Who among you knows the outcome of Judah? Who among you knows that I'm going to use the Persians to destroy the Babylonians? Who among you knows that I'm raising up Cyrus and remember if we remember the context for Isaiah and his writings, uh, there is no Cyrus at the time of this writing. There is no great Persian empire at the time of this writing. So he's saying to them, who of you knows that this is going to be the case? If you are truly gods, and if you're witnesses... That is, if your idols truly can look into the future, if they are to be considered equal to me, let them declare how I will deliver my people from Babylon. Then all of a sudden, if you can imagine the courtroom, if you will, is there a witness? Then what would happen in that courtroom? There would be what? Silence. No one could say anything and proclaim to us the former things. Can you look into the past? Can you look into the future? No, you can't. Then he, with this sort of sarcasm, he says, let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. You're claiming to be gods. Well, prove that you're gods. Come forth, bring forth your expert witnesses. Oh, I see you have none. Okay, let's move on then. Or let them hear and say, it is true. No, you can make no statement whatsoever. The nations have no case whatsoever. It is only the living God that we can trust. And then notice verse 10, if you will. Really, it's verses uh, the ch- verse 10. The chosen will be witnesses. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me there was no god formed and there will be none after me so now how can a people who are blind and deaf be his witnesses well it will occur by god's grace so he is saying to israel you will be my witnesses how because here they are the great babylonians have taken them away Uh, they're the 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 nation of the times if you will And so they would have thought, who can defeat the great Babylonians? No one can. Now, if someone would be able to defeat the Babylonians and deliver these people back to their land, I would believe then. I would really believe then. So God is saying, you're going to be just that. You will be my witnesses because when I deliver you, then you will be a testimony to the nations that Yahweh is the only true God. Now, notice here, They're going to be his witnesses, but in a passive sense, but in a passive sense, they should have been in an active sense. And what do I mean by that? They should have been actively doing what? Being a light to the nations, being a witness to the nations, being example to the nations. And now they are, they are not at this point, but God will still use them as witnesses. He's going to use their exile. And when now he brings them out of exile, you are my witnesses of God's greatness. This is another example of salvation by grace and grace alone. The scripture tells us plainly, does it not? For by grace you have been, and not of your, it is a what? Lest any man should do what? Boast. When you are saved, and some of you can say this even right now. Can you hold this? It's, it's, I'm trying to reduce weight up here. The, the podium <laughs> keeps going back down. Now give it back to me afterwards now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, All of you, in some measure, can you not think of some testimony that you have been to your friends or to your loved ones or to family members or even to enemies where you were once in exile under the dominion of Satan in the domain of darkness and God saved you? And then by you being saved and being transformed, people can say, oh, wow, that was an act of God. If you can save him, <laughs> if they can be saved, then perhaps I should pay more attention to this God. All of us may have some testimony like that. Some of us don't because we grew up and we, we grew up, we were fairly religious and and we were compliant, and, and so when we were saved, it it wasn't as uh, marketable, if you will, but others, oh my. Look what the Lord has done. And this is in part why God then sends his people to Babylon because he knows that he will bring them back again. And this is why he allows them to be there for a period of time because he knows it will bring them back again. So it will be so pronounced and they will be God's witnesses to say, Look what God has done. And so people who have been in the world and God saves them, people can say, Look what the Lord has done. In their life. I remember when I was first saved and, um, you know, in college and going back to Orlando where I grew up, and friends contacting me and just saying, Hey, Carl, I heard that you're going to be in town. Um, We're going to go to such and such and do such and such. And I won't fill in any of the blanks. (laughs) And I said, No, that's just not me anymore. Oh, then, yeah, I heard that you got religion. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> Once, or heard that you got religion? No, I, No, Christ got me. That's what happened, amen? That's what happened. I didn't get religion. I ran away from religion because I had religion because I could have told people the gospel plan before I was saved. And so the Lord saved me, and now all of these years that I've been saved, to the glory of God, people can look and say, you are a witness for the Lord. Even though, listen, even though I've never spoken to them. Because they see a transformed life. And initially people thought, oh, he just has religion. Then people were like, oh, I hear he's like, he's a minister now of the gospel. And I think some of them thought it was just going to wear off. And now my friends, like when I put out things on social media, as you know that I do, and I'm traveling, I'm going here and preaching, and now some of those same friends are like, oh, uh, well, one of my nicknames was Mandu. I don't know where that came from. Um, that's odd, because in Korean, Mundu is like for a pot sticker. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Providence, I suppose. <laughs> like, wow, proud of you. You're doing these things for the Lord. So I went from having religion to saying, He's serious. Question for you are you serious? Are you serious? That is, if people were to look at your life and they look at you and say, Oh, he is a witness. She is a witness. When did they speak to you? They'd never spoken to me. Oh, they gave your track. No, they never gave me a track, but I see their life, that they're so serious about the things of the Lord. They are a witness of God's gracious act in the life of a sinner, a faithful God who can take the unfaithful unbeliever and bring them the faith and then use them for the glory of God. So the question is for you today, even into this year and for the rest of your life, how serious are you about your faith? Will you be that witness for the Lord? Because they see a transformed life. See, the nations have no case. The blind will be saved. The chosen will be a witness. Notice verses, really, 11 through 13. The Savior is capable. Notice verse 11 through 13. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. So he simply just makes a statement These false witnesses that you have, they are not a savior. If they were a savior, then they would have delivered you, but they haven't delivered you. If they were a savior, they would have made life better for you in Babylon, but they haven't made life better for you in Babylon. I am the only savior. There is no one besides me. And notice the language in verse 12. It's rather pronounced because notice what he says. It is I, again, I, who have declared and I have saved and I have proclaimed. I've made the declaration of what I'm doing in the past and into the future. I'm the one that has saved you and will save you. And I'm the one that makes this proclamation in this court case to all the nations. Listen and believe that I am Yahweh. And notice this statement also in verse 12. And there was no strange God among you. What does that mean? Um, there's no other God <laughs> that has been faithful to you. There's no other prophet except for those that I sent to speak to you and you rejected them? Why are you looking at elsewhere? Then he says, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am I am God, no other. Notice verse 13. Even from eternity, I am he. And this is why the title... Um, why the heading is the eternal God who keeps his promises, the eternal God who acts on his promises. He says, even from eternity, I am he, I am. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. He is fully and absolutely capable. And this language here, who can revoke? Um, Beautiful language even here. This idea, if you go with me to Isaiah 14, Isaiah 1427. Uh here reverse or can simply be revoke. In Isaiah 1427, it says, For Yahweh of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can do what? Turn it back. All of us this year and for the rest of our lives. There is a providential plan that is unfolding in your life. Do you believe that? And by providence, what do we mean? God's particular way that he is controlling and taking care of his creation, how he's unfolding his redemptive plan. And you're in that redemptive plan. And what, God, what is God doing? He has a plan for you specifically. Now, when you use language like that today, you have to give a caveat. Because you hear, you know, God has a plan for you, right, friends? Turn to your neighbor and say, God has a plan for you, right? You know, you hear that sort of foolishness nowadays. And he has a plan for you, and I've seen it because in the new year, I've seen these posts, the year of, you know, the the year of abundant blessings, the year of triple blessings. When I was actually in Africa, it was actually when we were doing the workshop um, with you brothers, um, that I made a statement. Is it possible... For a person to be poor and it be a blessing, is it possible for a person to be facing difficulty and it still be a blessing? Now there were, there was someone in the back row and their initially were like, "No, no," and I explained it because here and I and I tell you again, if in fact the purpose of our very lives is to bring glory and honor to God. Do we agree with that statement so far? It is to bring glory and honor to God. And one way that we do that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do we agree with me so far? And now you should. I'm telling you, you should. (laughs) To be conformed to the image of Christ. I have another question for you. Does God often, if not always, in some measure, Use difficulty, heartache, and pain to conform us to the image of Christ. What is your conclusion? Therefore, what? Therefore, we can say the difficulty, the heartache, is in fact a what? Blessing. Because I'm more like Christ. And if I can be more like Christ, I'll bring more honor to God. I mean, I can look at it right now. And I know some people you've gone through difficulty. I know you've gone through heartache. I know you've gone through pain. But there's a God who is capable to bring about any result that he wants for his people. This eternal God is a faithful God. And he says, notice again, verse 13, even from eternity, I am. Now this language should conjure up a thought to you, should it not? It should conjure up the thought of the exodus again. Because remember, this is in one sense, exodus language here, but now it's a new exodus. It is not Egypt, now it's Babylon. And what happened before God's people would be delivered from um, Egypt? Moses went where? And he saw what? And what was declared to Moses? Tell them what? I am has sent you. And so this is the language of this God who is the eternal, faithful God. Then also, not only do we go back, our mind should go back to Exodus, but our mind should look forward even, if you will, from this perspective, that is, to the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, what do we see Jesus Christ declaring throughout? And really, one might be able to teach the Gospel centered around the seven I am's, because he says what? I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. So even in John's language, he is really, I think, his, his first point of reference is not Exodus, but his first point of reference is Isaiah and Isaiah to Exodus. This God, this faithful I am, cannot help but be faithful to you. Because that's who He is. It's a blessing. And for them, in one sense, we can say the exile was a blessing because it brought glory and honor to God. So He's capable. What else do we need to consider? The eternal God will act on his promises. He will act on his promises, verses 14 to 21. What do we see here? Let's move ahead. Notice God's sovereign declaration here. His sovereign declaration, verse 14 and 15. Thus says, remember what we said already? Uh, He declares, verse 10, He declared, verse 12, he declared, verse 12. Now he says in verse 14, so thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I have sent to Babylon. So pause for a second. This takes us back, if you will, to this language of Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40, again, I remind you, comfort or comfort my people, says your God Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all of her sins. I will comfort you despite your unfaithfulness. And so here in verse 14, I have sent for your sake. I will be faithful to you despite your covenant treachery. I've sent to Babylon to do what? And I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. Now, um, the Hebrew here gets really tough uh, in how we should understand what is happening. And I won't go through all the alternatives and what one could say here. But it's interesting. There is an alternative reading that I I lean towards. And if you were to look at the Net Bible, uh, uh, simply NET Bible, um, it would say this. He is going to turn, he is turning the Babylon's, their joyful shouts into morning songs. And what is he saying? You had a certain confidence and that confidence is going to be stripped away because now I'm going to bring the Persians and specifically Cyrus to you and these ships in which were the places in which you would rejoice and you would have pride in. All of that's going to be wiped away. You're going to go from joyful shouts uh, to mourning. The ships that you would have used for commerce, you're going to be using some of them, you're going to be using as refugees trying to escape the Persians even. I am a God that's controlling all things. Um, He's going to defeat the Babylonians, the great Babylonians, and it will be effortless for him. Notice, if you will, verse 15. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So he ends it here. He's essentially saying, I am fully capable. How? Why does he? Notice the barrage. First, I am Yahweh, so I'm the covenant keeping God. I am faithful. Then he says, I am the Holy One. I'm a God that is absolutely unique. Then he says, I'm the Creator. So I have the right over you and of the nations anyway. And then he says, I am your king. So now he makes it personal. And I need you to be my witnesses as a king. You are my emissaries. You are my ambassadors. And now I'm going to bring you back so you can be that emissary again. Faithful God, unique God, the God of creation who has the right over all things, but also a personal God is what he's communicating. Then... If you will, notice verses 16, if you will. God's charge to forget the past. Forget the past? What does this mean? Notice verse 16 to 18. So again, thus says Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty men, they will lie down together and not rise again again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. So remember, we've been saying throughout this language of the Exodus. Now, so a question for you then, when you read verse 16, who makes a way through the sea, what comes to mind? The Red Sea. And then he says what? Who makes a path through the mighty waters. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse the army and the mighty men, because what happened at the Red Sea? we remember the story, do we not? God declared to his people they would go through on what sort of ground? Dry ground. Then what happened? God says that I will be glorified through Pharaoh. How will he be glorified through Pharaoh? Because he raises up Pharaoh to glorify himself. And God hardens his heart because once the people of God are gone, what does Pharaoh do? What is this that I've done? and they go after the people of God. And what happens in that moment at the Red Sea? The sea comes back on the people of God, and then they're destroyed, utterly destroyed. So he's using this language of the Exodus to say, that was a great thing that I did, but hold on. I was a faithful God against Pharaoh. I was a faithful God against Pharaoh. I will be a faithful God against Nebuchadnezzar. I would be a faithful God against Belshazzar. Because that's who I am. I cannot help but be faithful. I cannot help but be perfect. It seems odd to say, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a moment. But he is the only being in the universe that can say, yes, I am perfect glorify me we would say something like that and we think you're out of your mind you're delusional but not so with our God so this language is true here forget the past Exodus 14 but also look with me to Isaiah 51 Isaiah 51 Isaiah 51 and 10 says, verse, um, verse 9, we'll start there. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God is in absolute control, amen? (laughs) Amen. But he says, don't look to the past. That's how I operated then. So God is making a declaration, in the the last thought is this. God's new way of salvation. His new way of salvation. Say, what new way? Verse 19. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will make even a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Again, the language of Exodus is here. What did God do in the wilderness? He brought water from a what? From the rock. And he says, now I'm going to give you drink again. And notice verse 21 the people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. In Isaiah eleven eight through 9, we'll see this ultimately fulfilled in the time of the Messiah. So we have a people that go from blind and deaf who committed covenant treachery to people who will offer God praise. And why? Only because of the grace of God. Because God is a faithful God. And for our lives, the question for us is, will we be faithful? Will we serve him as we should? Father, we thank you for these words you give us and pray that you would encourage us to be faithful as you are surely faithful. In Christ's name, amen.